The animatronic pirates on Disney's Pirates of the Caribbean ride once said, Yo-ho, yo-ho, a pirate's life for me. This is Save vs. Rant. Welcome to Save vs. Rant, the Everyman Gaming Podcast. I'm John. And I'm Jeremy. And today we're talking about a game that's close to my heart, Seafall. Alright, now, Seafall is a legacy game, and legacy games are games that are played as a campaign. So you play sequential games one by one, and with each game, new rules, new components, all sorts of new things are introduced for the next game. And the elements of the previous game are carried over to the next game in it. Now, because this is a legacy game, this is going to have a lot of spoilers. Huge spoilers. We're going to tell you everything. We're going to tell you the beginning. We're going to tell you the middle. We're going to tell you the end. We're going to tell you every stop along the way. One thing we want to get out of the way right now, for those of you who are going to stop listening because of the spoilers, is that we generally do not recommend Seafall. Part of the reason for this is Gen Con two years ago, Seafall was released. I wanted to get it. I wanted to try it out. It seemed so cool. A pirate nautical themed game where you're going and exploring the sea and you're putting down islands. You're naming things. It's amazing. I could not find it. I could not find the game at all at Gen Con. It sold out immediately. Waited a few months. The game kind of slipped out of my uh, my thought. But every now and then I would bring it up. My good, wonderful friend John and his wife bought it for me for Christmas. So I assembled a group of friends and went, okay, we're going to play a legacy game, a campaign-style game where we can't quit in the middle because we, we can't just reset the game. There are stickers, there are cards that are ripped up that we write on the board with Sharpie. We're going to do this. Now, Jeremy played with a group other than me. I was not involved in that group, so I did not experience this game with him, and I actually know most of what I know about this game from a few reports on the game. I wasn't told anything really in-depth, and I wasn't run through exactly how the gameplay worked. I actually uh, just looked into the box for the board and the game for the first time about 30 minutes ago. So I'd never seen this game before. So I'm going to be learning a lot about this along with any of you listeners who aren't familiar with the game. So I'm going to just give you a quick outline of what the game is. Each player in the game, you, know, you, you play three to five players, each player plays as a different province on the mainland. You name your country, you name your province. You then pick a leader and you name that leader. You get two ships and you name each ship. It's a fun little bit there. And you're going out and exploring the sea. There are some islands that have recently been discovered and you go out and you explore them and you name them. And you do all sorts of wonderful bits going out and exploring. You hire advisors to help you. Like, th there's a madman, there's a, a great sailor, there's an ironmonger. Different people that do different things. And your eventual goal is to amass glory for the name of your province, which you do through various methods. And apparently there's various routes to victory, that's my understanding. Yeah. yeah. And the game ends when you discover the island at the end of the world. How do you do this? I don't know. It's revealed as the game goes along. Okay, so when you first start out, you don't even know how you finish the game. You just know that the eventual goal is to discover this island at the end of the world, right? Yeah, all, all you know is that there are these spots on the board that you have to go out and explore. 
And that actually leads to one of the coolest bits in the game. There's the captain's book. When you explore a different spot on the island, you go there and you find a spot in the book and you read from this book. And it gives you a choose-your-own-style adventure. I'm reminded a lot of A Thousand and One Arabian Nights. Oh, I've, yeah, I've played that. Each turn you end up going on a miniature adventure and get to choose what actions you do and then find out what the outcome of that is based on like what you chose and what your abilities are, right? So it's kind of the same thing. You might, you know, have to deal with hostile natives and you have to decide whether to uh, fight or flight, you know, how you're going to respond. And then whatever you have is what determines the outcome, right? Exactly. And that's a really cool bit of the game. And the game is set up as a Euro-style gather resources game, bring it back, sell it, upgrade your ships and keep going. Unfortunately, that leads me to my first gripe. In the captain's book, the story bits are bland and general and just overall leaves you wanting more. There are very few bits that are specifically seafall flavored. Okay, well, when you, when you say that, you mean like the islands aren't showing up in the book or like there's nothing specific to characters or... In the book, there are no named NPCs. There are no named islands. You have all of these wonderful NPCs, these advisors that you get to name. None of them end up being named in any of the captain's log bits. Don't, don't each of the advisors have like a subtitle to their name, like the Ironmonger, like you were saying? Like when you showed me the cards, they all have like the Ironmonger, the Madman, the Carpenter, or whatever. Yes, and none of those show up. Uh, it seems like it would have been fairly easy to reference those, though. It would have been, but most of the story bits are actually told from the perspective of a captain on a ship. At no point do you ever actually name the captains of your ship. There are no names. There are no recurring NPCs. There's no... Sven, the native, that keeps popping up telling you, go back, go back. It just doesn't happen. And as such, it just leaves it bland and boring. And I get what they were trying to do. They were trying to leave it as a blank slate so that way you and your players could have an emergent story happening. And there was actually a few fun little bits of emergent story. One of our first islands that we got to name, we named as Obscura because it had six or uh, I think it had six different spots to explore on the island. Well, as the games went on, it became the most well-known and explored of all the islands. So there was that little running joke of Obscura. The most well-known island. The the thoroughly explored and completely settled island of Obscura. And then there were other islands, Tortuga, Post of Paracolo, Vesuvile, Port Javier, Paradise, just all that bit. Unfortunately, that, that leads me to my second major gripe. Everything was a blank slate, and so it was creatively taxing. I like to consider myself a fairly creative person. The three people I played with, your brothers Justin and Jeremiah, and my friend Jason... No, it's, it was all Jays. Yeah, it, it was. <laughs> we, we're all pretty creative people, but there are ten islands we have to name. Each of them could get colonies on them. You have to name those. Each of us had to name each of our ships. Each of us had to name our colonies. There were 75, I think, advisors. Each one of them had no name, and so you had to name every single person. After a while, we were just like, this guy's Ben. He kind of looks like a Ben. <laughs> do you think that maybe that to some degree factored into your gameplay? Like, do you think anyone ever was like, oh, geez, I'm not going to take another advisor because I don't have another name in mind? Or I don't think that really happened because a lot of us are very gamist in our play style. But there were definitely times where at the end of the game, I would yell at someone going, Hey, you have to name that advisor. You took him an hour ago and you still haven't come up with a name. Yeah. Hey, could you name him? Yeah, that guy. He's, he's an arsonist. He has a big bushy beard, glasses, hat. He's George R.R. Firebomb. 
You know, George R. R. Arson actually sounds more like George R. R. Martin, so uh, kind of missed the mark on that one, I think. Yeah, and all of this wouldn't have been so bad, except for the fact that it felt like we weren't playing the same game. That brings me up to my third gripe. At the beginning, there are three major paths that are laid out. There's the exploration route, there's the piracy route, the, the combat route, and then there's the merchant route. And not all of these are equal. Okay, but at the beginning, do they kind of present it like, oh yeah, these are all going to be valid routes to victory? At the beginning, each of these routes seems like a perfectly reasonable route to victory. And it was pretty even for the first two games that we played, the the prologue and the uh, game one. But then it started becoming very apparent that the exploration route was just the best route to go. There were numerous games where my friend Jason had 50 coins in front of him. In a game where we often would start with 8 and only ever get up to 12 coins, having 50 is an insane amount. And he could only ever convert that to 2 or 3, maybe 4 points. Which wouldn't be that big of a deal, except each game only has a very small number of points they have to get to. Like 12 or so. Converting all of that time and energy into only a handful of points, when every turn I was getting 1 or 2 points just left him so far lacking. And also, that wouldn't have been so bad if it would have come out at the very beginning and told us, hey, these paths to victory are not equal. It seemed like the exploration route was going to take an early lead, but then level off. We were assuming that the merchant route was going to suck early on, but then get really good toward the end of the game. Like a wizard in D&D sucks at level 1, rips at level 9. Exactly. And we thought that the combat route was going to be the wild card, most of the time being a suboptimal choice but every now and then just win games. That happened once, I think, where the person that was most experienced at combat got to win. So ultimately, it sounds like the exploration route was just the right way to go. It was entirely the right way to go. Now, I remember you telling me something about uh, Captain's Logbook, and when you explored, you sometimes got to read from the Captain's Logbook. Does that mean that the merchant didn't have as many opportunities to read from the Captain's Logbook? The merchant almost never got to read from the Captain's Logbook. Once again, the Captain's Log is probably the coolest part of this game. And as the explorer, most turns I would be opening the book going, okay, and I get to make this small decision here. It felt like I was actually going out and adventuring and having fun. Meanwhile, my friend Jason was sitting there playing accountant. And the the way that he was saying it, it wouldn't be so bad that he wasn't having as much fun as me if he could win more games. If it was a legitimate route to victory. So what you're saying is you feel like it would have been better if exploration was a weaker route to victory, but was more interesting, whereas the colonization was the more sure route to victory, but also kind of the straight and narrow without a lot of variation in what was going on. Exactly. My fourth gripe. Another one of the cool bits of this game is that on the side there are these six locked boxes. They, they have bit of tape over them. You're not supposed to open them until the game tells you to. When you reach certain milestones, when you do certain things in the game, you get to open up these boxes. The fifth box, the fifth out of six, introduced this really cool little light. It was a little black light, and it mentions there's a secret society that's been hiding among you this entire time. All these advisors that you've been naming and playing with and upgrading as the game goes on, some of them have been secretly working against you the whole time. Okay, that's actually really cool. That is. And so you get to take this light to to the advisors and shine it on them. And if they have their secret society number on them, you got to go to a special spot in the captain's book. Suddenly a whole new, a whole new route to victory is opened up. Okay. So then you're at that point, you're grabbing advisors and shining the black light on them so that you can check them out, right? 
Yeah. But there's 75 advisors. Yeah, and some of our games only went five turns. You can only hire one advisor a turn, so each person only got five advisors. In a four-player game, that's only 20 of the 75 advisors that I've been gone through. Plus, you're supposed to keep the numbers secret, so if you want information that someone else already has, you have to shine the light on an advisor that's already had, uh, had the light shine on them. It felt like it went from being a grand inquisition, a rooting out the evil, to... It really felt more like dusting for fingerprints. Like, we knew where the story was going. We knew who committed the murder. We have the murder weapon. We have his motive. Now we just have to place him at the scene. Time to dust the whole scene for fingerprints. So... So, like, the part of the police procedural that they skip, like, oh yeah, well, we dusted for fingerprints, and it doesn't show them, like, dusting for fingerprints for three and a half hours and, and carefully uh, cataloging all the results. They just say, we dusted for fingerprints and found this. It really felt like it was just artificially adding games to this experience. It felt like it was stretching it out, which was boring. Well, here's a question. did Was there an opportunity to, like, trade the information? Like, was there any incentive for you to share your discoveries? with each other of the numbers or whatever? It really wasn't in our best interest to do so. It was best to keep keep that information close to your chest because at it was revealed that at the end, whoever has the highest numbers will unlock the way to the end of the world. So we want to keep the numbers hidden so that way we can get these specific advisors and then go run off to get to the end of the world. It was just a way of prolonging the game. And it wouldn't have been so bad if it was in box three that we opened up. Okay. But it was box five. It was toward the end of the game. Every It was about every two or three games we were opening one of these boxes. The game kept moving forward. The game kept changing. It kept evolving. The story kept moving forward. And then we get to box five, and it takes us five games to get to the end. Okay, so you're saying that by box two, you had discovered you had discovered that not all strategies were created equal, and that some strategies were just plain worse than others. And then it boxes, so a significant portion of the game had taken place by the time you realized that. And and there's a lot of commitment involved in these strategies, right? Because I saw that on the character sheets or the the colony sheets, you were filling in boxes for things like exploration and stuff. You were building up your fleet with permanent powers. Yeah. And so... You were also upgrading, and every time you won, you would get a small upgrade. Like, oh, this field now produces more money, more income for me. So there was a lot of prolonging the game involved in everything. It would, it, There were things where you would just... You would just build up to something and then find out that maybe it's not such a great strategy. You have to backtrack and change how you were approaching things. And even with the advisors, that's more or less what you were doing because, like, someone would check an advisor and they'd get what their number was. And then you'd need to know what that number was. And you might be trying to base that off whether they looked pleased or, like, you know, whether they appeared to be bluffing. And it just ends up being a metagame underneath the game itself and in, in an environment that doesn't really support that sort of metagame. Exactly. My fifth gripe. There was a bit in this game that felt just completely unplay-tested. Tombs of the Ancients. So, as we went along, we found that on the islands there were these great tombs of the ancients. There was an ancient society that had once ruled all the islands, and they set up these great temples and tombs, and they locked away vast information and great artifacts. So you had to explore these tombs. Well, if you did that, you got three three victory points for ex uh, successfully exploring the tomb. At first, it felt like, okay, this is where things catch up. Okay, if we go into the tomb, now Jason can spend five gold to gain permanent successes to make it easier for him. 
No, it was just more exploration. So I, I was playing the exploration route. It was giving me four points every game. And once again, if we're trying to get to even toward the end when we were getting to 20 victory points, four is a fifth of the way there. Meanwhile, once again, my friend Jason is sitting back going, well, maybe there's ways that I can get... No, he, he just could not catch up. So there were no there were no sudden discoveries like, oh, well, the merchant also gets to do this. No. The first time that we successfully explored a Tomb of the Ancient, your brother Jer was sitting there two points away from the end of the game. And he was sitting going, okay, I'm going to wait one more turn, so I'm just going to explore this tomb, see what's going on there. And then the game was over, because he got four points and it was it was done at that point. And we all just kind of looked around and went, oh, well, next week we'll we'll play another game. So are the Tombs of the Ancients, are they there in the Captain's Logbook too? Is that... Yeah, in, in the back of the book there was a... a perforated page flap that you had to keep closed until you were told to open it. You open it up and then there's all these choices on there. They gave you subtle clues like, oh, this way there are monsters. This way you have to build life rafts. And most of the time it was just, okay, this area sounds interesting. Let's go. Okay, I got it. And you, you got, gained your four points. And I think that the best way I can describe it is, at the beginning I said that this was kind of like a Euro game. You're moving little cubes, you're gaining points, you're getting gold for it. It felt like when the Tombs of the Ancients were introduced to the game, that the designer went, You know what? I actually hate Euro games. Let's just shit all over the idea of Euro games and just go full-on luck-based exploration. Big middle finger to the people who like Euro games. That's a little harsh. So the whole Euro game element of, like, moving cubes around for trade just really fell flat? Is that what the issue was? Toward the end of the game, I would generally buy one, maybe two cubes in an entire game. Like, each time that we sat down to play a session, I would buy one or two cubes. Our friend Jason buying five, six, moving around every turn, getting vast amounts of wealth, and... Very little payout. Yeah, very little payout for it. Just, you know, just having this wealth really didn't give him any real opportunity, so basically the opposite of the real world, but... (laughs) So, uh, my sixth gripe about this, the beginning and the end. The very beginning upset all of us. The very ending upset all of us. The very beginning, you play a prologue game where you learn the rules, you start setting up, you name the first few islands, and there's a little bit of the story going on. Each of the rulers of the provinces are gaining these dreams, and they feel like they have to go out to the ocean to find more glory and continue on. At the end of the prologue game, it goes, okay, all of these characters that you've named and grown attached to, rip them up, destroy them, they're dead. That's harsh. Yeah, they got lost at sea. Get more characters, they're their heirs, name them, you're playing as them for the rest of the game. I feel like maybe it would have been more satisfying if it was like, put them aside, and then they came up later, but... Well, that's the other thing. They did come up later. We had ripped up these cards and forgot the names on them, and then uh, at the very, very end it goes, oh, what was that character's name? Write it down here. Really? Wow. That's, uh... That's interesting. And then at the end of the game, this game's building up. There's dark mysteries. There's the secret society preventing people from going out to the ocean. The ancients fell because they learned too much. What's going on? What is sealed away? What is at the island at the end of the world? And once again, this is the biggest spoiler. If everything that I've said so far has not dissuaded you from uh, playing the game, turn this off right now. Good? The end of the world. We get to this big wall of fog. You take these secret society members up there who who knew the way there. They open it up and they disintegrate. The ocean falls away as there in the distance is an island ruled by the dead. You have unlocked the way to the island of the damned. Oh, so it's it's basically a big hellmouth. Exactly. And then the last game that you play, the dead are coming out and destroying these colonies. They're trying to make their way back to the mainland, destroying everything. A great apocalypse is coming. The four horsemen of 
the apocalypse are now coming out, and if they gain too much power, they wreak major havoc on everything. And that game took us four turns. Wait, what? So, so wait, up until this point, you said that the longest game you played was like, what, 12 turns, did you say? Was about 12 turns. Uh, each, each game has six turns and then a winter phase. We experienced the second winter a handful of times, so, whoa, that would actually be 13, 14 turns. Okay. Most of our games didn't actually get to the, the winter. Like, we went five game, five turns, six turns. Every now and then we got to a seventh turn. The final one, the final game we played didn't actually change that we it got to the fourth turn and the island of the dam got closed okay but to be fair you were all very powerful at this point you built yourselves up and you all kind of banded together to make this uh it was still a fully competitive game there was no banding together it was still just a race to see who could close the island of the dam that does sound pretty uh that does sound like it felt kind of flat and not just that the difficulty for closing the island of the damned is 20 To put this into perspective, at the very beginning of the game, the hardest difficulties are 6. Toward the middle of the game, the hardest difficulties were 10. To find the island at the end of the world, you need to succeed on a difficulty 30 check. This is a huge undertaking. So closing the island of the damned at a 20? So it was easier than finding it. Easier than finding it. It just was such a letdown. There was, we played for 13 games, plus the prologue, and we were sitting there going, yes, What's this ending? What's this ending? Oh my goodness, the dead have risen. We have to fight back. Oh, oh, it's over. Oh, um, uh, you have the most points you won? Okay, what's the benefit? Oh, you get to name the continent. Okay, more naming. Um, One more thing to name. Fantastic. Well, one thing that is striking to me is that last game. It feels like that's a wasted opportunity. Did it play out like other games? It played out almost exactly like the other games. We just went around, we got advisors, we upgraded our ships, we sailed toward the end, and rolled um, rolled to make a check. Wait, wait, so hell is bearing down on you and you're still, like, trading spices and iron and stuff? Not just that, but we're doing it while the threat of death is hanging over. But yeah, we're just trading spices, gaining upgrades to our ships, sailing around. And I suppose that brings me to my my big seventh and final gripe, my whole thesis statement for wanting to do this episode. This game kept setting the bar high, giving us these great promises, and then falling short. Well, yeah, the designer of it is, I mean, he invented the concept of legacy games, right? Yes, it's Rob Davio. He started out with Risk Legacy, which was a breakthrough success. Oh yeah, rave reviews, everybody seems to love it. I really wanted to play it for a long time, just never actually had the opportunity to find a stable group to play it with. And then the next game that he made that was a legacy game was Pandemic Legacy, which I believe we checked beforehand is still number one on BoardGameGeek.com. Yeah, still the number one game on the biggest game aggregate site out there. So it's an amazing game by any measurement. I've never, again, I've never played that one. I've never had a stable group to play it with. It's sitting unplayed on my bookshelf right now. I'm waiting. I still want to play it. And playing Seafall hasn't turned me off to wanting to play Pandemic Legacy. But knowing that those two great games came before this, and then knowing that this is this is the first one built on entirely on its own. This one was not built on an existing IP. So it was built from the ground up to be a legacy game, to tell this story, to have us go out and explore and find what's going on, and to ultimately be let down. 
Well, it sounds like one of the big issues with it is that it kept, if not explicitly making promises, implicitly making promises. You kept having this idea that the game was going to be something that ultimately it was not. That it was going to have these elements. And I really, I just want to go back to this. It really feels like that last game must have been like a huge wasted opportunity. Because if I had designed the game, I would have forced you guys to band together or even to or even given you the opportunity to band together but made it favorable to not band together for the purposes of achieving a personal victory to to give that sort of balance and treachery to it it would have been a great last opportunity to shake up how the game is played another big problem with it was each box that we unlocked influenced more and more games afterward even the la- even the inquisition box which was the second to last box we opened lasted for five games. The very last box that we opened that unlocked the Island of the Dan influenced one game. And that that was just such a letdown to have gone for all of this and not play two, three, four games with hell bearing down on us. That feels like it could have completely changed the game. Flip the script. Throw the rule book out. This game is now something entirely different than what you've been playing. And I think that the best way I've described this so far is this feels like a game that wasn't quite fine-tuned enough. Probably the third edition of this game would be amazing. If someone went, oh, this is Seafall third edition. You want to play it with me? Hell yeah. But this game is such a letdown, I don't think it's going to get another edition of it. I don't think it's going to be good enough to keep going. Well, that is a shame, because it really it really looked pretty awesome, and it still looks awesome. Looking at the components, I mean, they're high-quality components. And the sticker sheets give you this impression that the game is just going to be this expansive experience with all this stuff going on. It's I mean, a heavy box, too. It's a, it's Oh, it's got some heft to it. Yeah, I know. But overall, I just cannot recommend this game. I loved the experience. I loved playing this game with my friends. Yeah, but I've done a lot of lousy things with my friends and had a good time because I was with my friends. This little hiccup hasn't even slowed Rob Davio down. Pandemic Legacy Season 2 is coming out, and people are still going, yes, this is going to be great. This is going to be amazing. I'm looking forward to it. But Seafall is just a game that you can just pass on. So, that was our Seafall episode. Next episode, the notes here say Mary Sue in pants. Uh, John, who's Mary Sue? <laughs> okay, um, Mary Sue is a concept in fandom communities of a character who is too perfect, who who just is over the top in their perfection. They are the awesomest, the bestest, and they do everything amazing. And pants is a concept of a character that has so little personality that you just pour yourself into them and experience it through their experience. And I'd like to discuss these ideas and how they pertain especially to RPGs and to games with storyline characters. So that's where we're going next episode. Alright, that sounds like a lot of fun. Once again, this has been Save vs. Rant. Thank you very, very much for listening. When you have expectations, you're setting yourself up for disappointment. Ryan Reynolds Save vs. Rant is a Tabletop Gamers Guild production. Your hosts are John and Jeremy, with music by Timmy Skittles. Save vs. Rant is recorded on dueling laptops in front of a silent and invisible studio audience. Visit us at SaveVsRant.com, or contact us on Facebook or Twitter at Save vs. Rant. We'd love to hear from you. 